The Third Men Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! greeting yeah i in james i invented a contraption oh it caused a train wreck and many many people are dead now oh god (laughs) it put several of them in traction but mostly they're dead paul you know you know you're my brother and you know i would never do anything to hurt you (laughs) but i'm in the middle of dialing 911 to uh-huh. tell them that you are a monster. So would you say that that is your look? That is your reaction to what I'm telling you. Yeah, because you can't switch it around for your own satisfaction. Paul, it's a little more than a reaction. You've killed many people. James, I'm going to burn your house down. <laughs> Paul, no. Paul, what have I ever done to you? <laughs> My name is Paul Kaminsky. Welcome to our Jack White podcast. <laughs> My name is James Kaminsky. I'm your other co-host. Yeah, well, this week, James, is because this week... We've become criminals. We've become criminals, uh, smooth or otherwise, and we're talking about part two of uh, Icky Thump. Thumpity, thump, thump, thumpity, thump, thump, look at Icky go. Thumpity, thump, thump, thumpity, thump, thump, look at Icky go. Thumpity, thump, thump, thumpity, thump, thump, over the business of Rawhide! Welcome to part two of our Icky Thump Spectacular. Paul, this is this is our Jack White podcast, as you as you had explained, where we go over Jack White and his history and Third Man Records and, and Jack White adjacent acts and his TV show appearances and his movies and his albums, etc., etc., etc. Yes, and this is our album analysis type show where we go through and discuss different Jack White album releases and give a bunch of background. And this is spotlighting Icky Thump, the White Stripes' final studio album, 
not their final album, I suppose you could count Great White Northern Lights, but their final studio album as a group. And, you know, as we discussed in the last show, I think their most coherent effort um, as a uh, as a fully realized uh, musical force. Yeah. Wouldn't you say, James? I would definitely say. Yeah. It's the last truly new music that we hear from them. Yes. They go out on a on a high note. But before we get oh. to all that, James. Yeah, Paul. Is there something we should stop doing? We should stop breaking down. Stop breaking down. Stop breaking down. James, Stop Breaking Down is the segment of the show where we go in and we apologize for that which we have aired on prior episodes. And this one's sort of a complicated one, James, I gotta tell you, because it's one part Stop Breaking Down, one part I Think I Smell a Fact, and then one part, like, apology. So it really has combined all of our different varying... um, we screwed up segments into one just sort of all-encompassing oopsie. But in the end, it really is a stop breaking down, and it refers to our drumming episode, Jack the Drummer, episode 27 of the podcast, in which we talked about all of Jack White's drumming appearances and his history with the instrument. But James, there's a very important figure we've neglected to highlight in that episode. There is... Paul, please do go on. There is. So Callie Durga points out, and this is this is especially embarrassing because I think we had just talked with Callie about this this thing. But uh, Callie Durga points out that there was no mention of Whip Triplet mm. in our episode. And Whip Triplet, of course, being the mysterious Nashville session drummer, session drummer, studio musician that appears on a lot of third man releases and who many have speculated, though, has not yet been 100%, to my knowledge, been proven true that it is, in fact, Jack White. Join me. Perhaps you may be able to help solve a mystery. And it is a an alias uh, for Jack. So we neglected to call this out. He plays Whip Triplet, whoever it is. Perhaps the answer will come someday soon. Likely Jack plays on Lily May's Nobody's single, The Blue Room, and a host of other tunes. And that includes, but isn't limited to, drums, percussion, and, quote, gong on Olivia Jean's Bathtub Love Killings album. According to the legend, he carried only three tools, a hammer, a saw, and a T-square. Look, it's never been confirmed to my knowledge, but it's very likely him. You be the judge. Although, it's weird because he still, Jack still credits himself with other stuff on those albums. So why he would credit himself with production and not on drums is, strikes me as a little odd. A rational explanation is hardly necessary. It would make sense because Triplet, obviously, with the threes and, you know, it would make sense. Meanwhile, there's this sad Droopy the Dog character in the corner who's like, I'm Whip Triplet. And nobody notices me. Fact, fantasy, and history have come together to tease the imagination. Good old, good old droopy triplet. He was described in a vault chat as, quote, a badass. Uh, (laughs) Session drummer, lives in Nashville, great guy, powerful beat machinations. So, there you go. But, you know, I'm sorry we didn't mention Whip. 
in our episode, but, uh, you know, we have now, and we're very, very sorry, and we really should stop breaking the bone. No, we should just stop breaking the bone. Cloaked in secrecy, they show up without warning. State their business, then vanish as quickly as they appear. But James, that brings us to the meat at hand. Yes, here. Paul, let's get to this meat. Yes. Shall we shall we get back uh, right into the track by track? Oh, I think we should. Track 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 track. Uh, it's a track 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 track. We haven't said actual <laughs> words on this podcast in ages. I know. <laughs> so Paul, we left off having just gone through side uno, mm. which is the the first side of four on the Icky Thump record. So we had gone over the songs Icky Thump. You don't know what love is, you just do as you're told, and 300 mile per hour, torrential outpour blues. Indeed we did, James. Yes. So now we're going to move right along to side dwa, D-W-A. Which I can only believe stands for druids with attitude. (laughs) You're correct, Paul, but it is also the second side of the album, side dwa. All right, and what opens side two, James? No, Paul, side dwa. You're going to make me say it, aren't you? I am going to make you say it. I won't continue. What opens the armoire? Good enough. Paul, the opener is, might I say, a little horny because it's Conquest. No, you might not say side opens with conquest conquest i feel torn about it's not one of my favorites although it is uh if i'm not mistaken the only cover on icky thump it is yes which is kind of unusual although when you look at get behind me satan having no covers it is kind of weird you know to then be back in cover land but you know jack does that from time to time so i suppose it's expected anyway it it does sort of stick out to me as sort of an oddball song on the album because the rest of the tracks seem so sophisticated and personal and then this thing with the heavy mariachi overtones and this is kind of uh i don't know it sounds almost dusty springfieldish in terms of how it's laid out it's just it just never really did a lot for me yeah i i see i i have a soft spot for this song it 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 always uh was a good song to play very loudly and it, i mean this this whole album is a good album to play very loudly but i do have a soft spot for this song and i don't know i don't know what it is about it maybe because it's so different it is definitely very different for him because it's it's one of the very few white stripe songs where uh another person plays on it Mm, that's right it's uh 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 go on it's hold on hold on hold on hold on tell you in a second regalo regalo aldama that's the one i remember because you i for some stupid reason i have you saying the phrase it's just a regalo name like in my head and it won't leave my head so yes it's regalo aldama we're probably horribly mispronouncing it but i i say regalo it's it's fine Whatever. I, we were calling him Michael Gondry for the longest time. It's yeah, okay, fine. That's, we could that's get away fair. with Regalo. That's very fair. So Conquest, uh, for those of you who don't know, is a cover of a 1952 Patty Page song that was originally written by Corky Robbins. The hunted became the huntress. The hunted became the prey. Conquest. Now you know 
Uh, Patty Page, for those of you who don't know, is best known for her hit, How Much for That Doggy in the Window? Ah. <laughs> hey, Paul. Okay. How Much for That Doggy in the Window? How much is that doggy in the window? The one with the waggly tail. How much is that doggy in the window? I do hope that dog is for sale. That explains the sophistication of the song, uh, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, yes. Not, not and to it, it, denigrate that tune, but the lyrics are very simple. Although, you know, Jack Ayer's on the side of simple, so I get it. Well, it's it's nothing compared to uh, our our friend's favorite song. How much for that turkey in the window? Which friend? Which friend would that be, James? Uh, our friend being one Mister Carl Butterball of the Butterball Turkey. <laughs> Carl Empire. Oh, Carl. You sir. You sir, over there. Yes, Carl. How much for that turkey in the window? It's a fine-looking turkey. You want to, you want to buy a turkey from me? You're a turkey magnate. I am, I am, but I, I have an eye for a fine, fat bird, and that, sir, is a fine, fat turkey that'll fit in a fine, fat stomach of mine. If you know what I'm talking about. Oh, so this one's just, this one's just for Carl. This is a this Carl Wish turkey exclusively. That'll be, that's $4,000, Carl. Mm, I'll take it. No more, no less. <laughs> well, that was the easiest and yet most disturbing $4,000 I've ever made. <laughs> Lord knows what Carl's doing with that turkey before he eats it. And unfortunately, I have to pay you in pennies. For that's all I have. <laughs> Carl, your, your entire currency is, <laughs> is in pennies? Yeah, it's a little butterball very... foundation exclusively penny-based. In fact, I go to the bank and cash all of my bills in for pennies because Carl Butterball loves two things in this world. One being just delicious turkeys. The other being the sweet satisfaction of holding a big pile of copper pennies. Goodbye. Oh, Carl. Um... Where this is too early in the episode for Carl Butterball. Oh man, no, he's he's popping right off. Anyway, <laughs> we got to Conquest Patty Page song. So basically, this this song was on a record that that Jack would often listen to while doing upholstery projects in Detroit yeah. with Third Band Upholstery. So he he's quoted as saying, "The last song on this album was Conquest." Whenever the first horns came on, I knew that whatever I was working on, I was going to have to flip the record pretty soon. So he does what I do, which is mm. I know the last song, like I memorize the last song on the side so that I can scramble from my desk yeah. to my record player to flip it because my tone arm scratches across, it skits across the side to retract because the weighting is imbalanced. It's bad. I think you should just buy a new turntable. Too. I like that turntable a lot, though. It plays good. This song came around because... Of all of the actual themes that we talked about earlier on the album, you know, the, the, the kind of southwestern, vaguely Mexican motif that's in Icky Thump and Conquest. And there's the role reversal mm. motif that, that is kind of underlying through everything. Yeah. Jack actually says this finally came around because all the themes on the New Stripes record sort of revolved around role reversals, the underdog becoming the one in control. He says, the lyrical message in Conquest is exactly what you root for in life with people you know. You hope they'll have the sense to switch a situation around if they're in peril. I love how bold the song is and simple at the same time. It's kind of irresistible. Yeah. 
Which actually, the idea of switching a situation around, not only is it present in the lyrics, which is, you know, about a woman actually basically taking a man and and being kind of a femme fatale, if you will. But there, there's a music video for it as well that, that does the same role reversal with mm-hmm. Jack fighting a bull. Jack is a bullfighter matador. That's the word. You know, he's chasing after the bull and eventually the bull then starts chasing after him. And it's a whole thing of, you know, back and forth, this 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 yeah. dance that they're doing it's a cute video i think i like the video a little more than the song but jack's real funny you know he's a, he's he's born for the stage i think to a degree and whether that be the concert stage or in uh, this kind of acting i think he's just natural it's a really good music video yeah yeah so for this for this music video jack actually trained under bullfighter dennis borba who who has trained several other stars Boba. Mm-hmm. But uh, we're going to get a little bit more into this in a future episode, which I have planned. Back to the song at hand, we had said that uh, Regulo Aldama was the the trumpet player on the album, which, again, is abnormal to have a a third member of the team on on an album. Although not unheard of, it's just not very often that it happens. Jack's brother on Get Behind Me Satan with the percussion. Patrick Keeler. Yeah, on His Big Baby. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, the the way Jack actually found Regulo, he actually found this guy in a mariachi band at a local Mexican restaurant in Nashville. Okay, near near where they recorded at Blackbird. That's one way to do it. And the way they they recorded him is they they took his trumpet playing and they turned it. This one guy, as Jack says, we turned this one guy into a whole trumpet. <laughs> they just kind of like uh, stacked uh, yeah. this trumpet player and turned him into a whole whole thing. Huh. There were three singles released for Conquest. Again, single heavy album. There's a lot of stuff on here. Yeah, but they released three separate singles for Conquest and actually in a in a set that came with a slip mat and other such things. Yeah. But yeah, the three B-sides were It's My Fault for Being Famous, Honey, We Can't Afford to Look This Cheap, and Cash Grab Complications on the Matter. And these came alongside not only the regular album version of Conquest, but one of the the singles had an acoustic mariachi version of Conquest, and another single had Conquista, which was a Spanish-language version that Jack sings. I love It's My Fault for Being Famous. That's one of my favorite Jack songs in general. Honey, We Can't Afford to Look This Cheap, I think is like sort of fine, but it's it's not one of my favorites. And Cash Grab Complications, I, I, I don't know if I've ever heard that. You have, and it, it is good. I don't know. It's My Fault for Being Famous and Honey, We Can't Afford to Look This Cheap are so silly in context and in lyrics. They're much more memorable. I'm at the LAX just a check in my bag. When up comes a little paparazzi scumbag I took a laptop, slapped him up beside his head The cops wanna know why I left him for dead It ain't his fault for being nameless It ain't his fault for being thoughtless It ain't his fault for being shameless But it's my fault for being famous uh, the releases came along with trading cards that featured bullfighters, and the characters on them were El Blanca Rosa, El Sloth, and El Perador. All of them were Jack and Meg. El Perador, by the way, is translated to the loser. Yeah. Soy un perador. I'm a loser, baby, so why don't you kill me? Now, Paul, you sang a song by by a certain individual who goes by mm. by the name Beck, and Beck yes. has a lot to do with these these singles because 
All of these singles and B-sides were recorded in Beck's living room. Ah, that's right. Yes. Beck also contributed vocals and piano to It's My Fault for Being Famous and slide guitar on Honey, We Can't Afford to Look This Cheap. Beck was actually uh, the one to find the mariachi band for the uh, acoustic mariachi version. Mm -hmm. You know, being in Southern California as they were, Beck knew of a place where where these ensembles were standing around waiting for work, pointed Jack in that direction. Hmm. So they just cast migrant workers for the mariachi band? I, I believe so, Paul. Wow. Jack White said, while we were working on a song, we asked if somebody could go over there and check and see if there was anybody there. She called back and said, do you want a four-piece band or a five-piece band? <laughs> <laughs> and he came back and said, three-piece and a biscuit. Oh! We did it. Jack was excited about these these songs because he really likes B-sides. He, he says, well, the problem with B-sides is it's almost like, okay, we'll go out and write some mediocre songs. <laughs> I really love B-sides because it gives you a new chance to breathe some new life into a whole project that you are already working on. It's almost like the stepchildren of the project of the album. Yeah. Yeah, there's a great uh, George Harrison B-side called I Don't Care Anymore, and the, it opens with him saying, all right, got another B-side to make. Okay, here we go, we'll play this. Got a B-side to make, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't got much time now, so we better get right on with it. And uh, it's a very transparent indictment of the B-side process. Although I love B-sides. I think they're lovely. And sometimes B-sides can be more than that. Like in the case of Margot Price's single for Hurtin' on the Bottle, that B-side is Desperate and Depressed, which I think is just as strong, if not stronger, than than Hurtin' on the Bottle. And she actually speeds it up for her live show, which we heard not only live but uh on the uh, latest vault release i love that damn song and that's a b-side so so there you go all right yeah that's well, my defense of b-sides paul would you say that Margot price is your b-side woman ah whoa oh. b-side <laughs> woman dude oh, man more more <laughs> um, narrow references for everyone to enjoy oh yeah i know we're, we're really diving deep on these mccartney stuff so in 2008 usa today actually put patty page and jack white on the phone together kind of like that steve coogan email ah, yes that, yeah that we went over in the coffee and cigarettes episode patty page said nobody else picked that song except me and jack she says that she's thrilled that a new generation has discovered her music through the white stripes cover it's great that they realized that some of us old folks had something on the ball, too. While on the phone, Jack White was, was talking to her, and uh, and he said, I love how bold the song is and simple at the same time. So they, they also went over the fact that uh, that eBay was using the song, the Patty Page version of the song in ads at the time. That's right. I remember and, that. Uh, yeah. And uh, Jack White said, when we were mixing our record, we joked that MapQuest would want to license it. <laughs> the music video, by the way... Uh, won an MTV VMA award for best cinematography in a music video. Yeah, that explains the Jack and Triumph the Insult comic dog on the red carpet interaction. Oh, yeah. So, Paul, that's going to bring us to the next song, which... Are you sure you don't want to talk for another 40 minutes about Conquest? (laughs) Paul, it's a lot to talk about on Conquest, uh, (laughs) but the... But you're twisting my arm to move on, so uh, you're, you're making my... Oh, man, my arm, it's breaking, Paul. You, My bone broke. Ah, <laughs> is the next song, Little Cream Soda? No, the next song, Paul, is Bone Broke. Hey, 
I like Bone Broke. Again, not my favorite. <laughs> yeah, well, I we... feel like I feel like Icky Thump starts really strong and ends really strong, but there's like this weird lull in the middle, and I feel like Bone Broke kind of falls in there. It hums along, you know, it's fine. I have a new appreciation for this song, especially after some of the information that Jared told us last week. After learning about its origins, you know, I have an appreciation for it because it it does have that early stripes kind of vibe to it. Yeah, it Um, really does. It it could fit in on blood cells, honestly. It's got a very simple chord progression. It's, it's, you know, I can see this, like you said, around blood cells. I could see this in style. I could even see this on their self-titled. And and it's worth pointing out that you can't say that about all these tracks. That's partly what sets Icky Thump apart from the rest of the Jack White catalog is because they sound very distinct to that time. There's, I feel like, you know, those first four records are all pretty similar in terms of, you know, there's, there's variations and I get there's evolution going on. But in terms of the songwriting and, and style of song, they're all pretty pretty similar. Then Satan really takes us away. And then Icky Thump mm. kind of comes back, but brings with it the sophistication of Satan. So there's the fact that this one could be slotted into those earlier records, I feel like, is an anomaly on this record. Right. Yeah, totally. It does stick out a little bit. I remember thinking that when I first heard it also. This and Little Cream Soda both were um, were songs that stuck out as not exactly fitting in. Mm-hmm. But uh, as as we had talked about earlier, the song was originally written for Rocket 455 and was later released on a 45 with Jet Plastic Recordings. Jack White had said, We also found a song that I wrote 10 years ago called Bone Broke that I wrote for another band I wasn't even in in Detroit. And they never got a chance to record it. Well, now they did. Um, <laughs> so that had been sitting around and we said, Well, why don't we try to do that song too? That's 10 years old. Let's take a stab at that. <laughs> That's definitely from that period when we started, and it sounds exactly like it fits because of the structure of the band, the song fits. Yeah. He was able to, to work it in. It was one of the, the songs that was able to to kind of transition into the album that they already had. Most of the, the stuff was written between Get Behind Me Satan and Broken Boy Soldiers, but this was, was dug up from years ago and, and one of the few that was. Hmm. But Paul, this, this song... It's a prickly thorn on the album, but <laughs> I can never remember the the track title for this song or the song following it. Yes, uh, the next track is "Prickly Thorn, but Sweetly Warned." Followed by St. Matthew, uh, the battles in the air. 
St. Andrew, this battle is in the air. St. Andrew. Yes. St. Andrew, yes. this battle is in the air, yeah. I can never um, remember this... those, because they always feel like the same song, and they're all, they're really weird. They're not ones I, I go back to on this one. Yeah, they're they're kind of twins on the album. They're, they're This and the following track, St. Andrew, both address Jack and Meg's Scottish heritage. They both they both share some Scottish ancestry, and they have both have bagpipes in them, and they, they you it has that uh, that Sergeant Peppery kind of feel where they one song kind of melds into another. Yeah, I like and this it, one. I think I like Little Ghost better. I find Little Ghost to be a, akin to this one. If I had to choose, I'd probably go Little Ghost. But uh, I like this one. It's got a, it's a catchy, it's a catchy enough hook. The lighty lighty yeah. night lows and whatever. Yeah, it's, I, I agree with you in that it's not my favorite on the album, but I, I like it being different. This, this album is full of different, different mm-hmm. things and sounds for them. So yeah, it's got that. And again, it's got another third person on the album, oh. which is on bagpipes, Jim Drury. Uh, is is on bagpipes on this song and St. Andrew. Wow. The song is about thistle, which is the, the national flower of Scotland. And as I said before, Jack and Meg both have some Scottish ancestry, and it's kind of a celebration of their heritage. In Rolling Stone, Jack said, Through Nova Scotia, a lot of Scottish families moved to Detroit to work at the car factories. I hope Scottish people take this song as my gift to them. So this is his Mull of Kintyre, I guess? I guess. Yeah. It's good, you know. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice yeah. gift. He also said, Paul, that bagpipes are due for a revival. They are They are not. <laughs> they are a very somber instrument, very beautiful in the right context. I stick with the marimba, Jack. <laughs> well, it's a, it's an instrument that vomits up music in... Yeah, it's music vomit. ...interesting ways. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah puke rock. I feel like <laughs> I've been nothing but negative about this album. I love this album. We just happen to be in a segment of the album I'm not as thrilled with. I assure everyone out there, I do love Icky Thump. It's a good album. <laughs> I don't mean to take a big old music puke on it, but, Paul's just you know. not an enthusiast of 52-year-old London-born Tennessee-based bagpiper Jim Drury. Uh, that's really who I have a grudge against, yes. Drury was interviewed about this song. He said, you don't do well in Nashville unless you're a good guy. You have to have social graces. I'd never met Jack White before, so I didn't know what to expect. But I'd heard stories, you know? I was impressed by how musical he was and how agreeable he was to changing things on the fly. We spent three hours together and had a nice conversation in the engineering engineer booth. We're kind of similar, because my family is in Nasdin. I guarantee you I'm mispronouncing that. And his Mm -hmm. wife is from England. So we had a conversation about that. Another instance of the United Kingdom bleeding into this album mm-hmm. first being Ick- icky thump now we're getting into some scottish heritage so we're going around the kingdom uh, jack white very popular in britain and that single icky thump would be number one in england so uh he, he has a strong connection to the uh the old the old kingdom beyond the on, <laughs> yes, across the, the old, pond that old their kingdom yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The united kingdom that's yeah. what they call it it's united now oh good and do stay for the poppins and finally uh jack plays mandolin on this uh which you know he learned how to play during the filming of cold mountain which we talked about on our cold mountain episode yes we did and this song leads right into the next song saint andrew this battle is in the air
this is the skippable track. I mean, it's just not really that much of a like Meg mutters throughout it, and it's like a lot of banging. For the longest time, didn't realize this was a different song. Like I thought this was just the end bit to Prickly Thorn, Sweetly Worn. But yeah, you know, whatever. It's fine. We don't get a lot of Meg on this album, so I'm you know I'm kind of good with it. Yeah, it's a response to the previous song. Again, it has that Scottish flair to it. Yeah, it features two very prominent White Stripes themes, children and homes, such as the line, who is here to greet me? The children are kind. I'm not in my home. I travel backwards in ecstasy. I, yeah. Is that what she's saying there when she's muttering? Yeah. I don't even have that listed as a separate song on my icky thump <laughs> here. I don't, I just don't have it. It's interesting. I'll give it that. But I, boy, did I find some interesting information on it. Jack says that he spent the past two years prior to this album doing extensive reading on the lives of the saints you know it's interesting because there's a song that has to do with martyrs on the album and there's also this song that has to do with saint andrew he says the saints are interesting characters to me but not in any super religious way it's just been a way for me to meditate it's interesting that a lot of them may have never even existed even still there's a lot to learn from them they all had a different way to get to heaven it says a lot about humanity which is funny he says some of them didn't even exist because there are two saint andrews and i'll get into one in a minute but one of the saint Andrews probably did not exist. That's uh, the the St. Andrew of Scots, I believe. He he was either born in Scotland or Ireland or not at all. Jack White also said that about this song, it's about being torn between two things. And that's what we are every day, whether it's between wanting to please yourself or please other people or just having a hamburger instead of a salad. You go through these tiny little battles to the huge battles between right and wrong. The bluesmen were just relating that division. Each one probably had different reasons for doing it, but it all comes back to being torn and expressing it, which goes back to the themes of the album. Right. Role reversals and and being torn between... I'm kind of cribbing off of this last statement, but, you know, being torn between two things. And that goes to the duality at the nature of the band, male, female, that, that kind of thing. There's never, there's never a solid explanation as to why he he chose St. Andrew or what this battle is or what the lyrics are about, at least none that I can find. But St. Andrew's Hall is a famous Detroit venue that the White Stripes actually never played. Hmm. St. Andrew's is a town on the east coast of Fife in Scotland. Fife, dog. And then St. Andrew in the Christian tradition is the the brother of St. Peter and is a disciple of the New Testament. He was actually famously on the boat when Jesus told them to be fishers of men. Let's hear a clip of that. No. Oi, I want all you blokes to be fishers of men. What, what? Oi. Oh, man. I didn't know Russell Crowe was playing Jesus in this one. So anyway, St. Andrew was a disciple of Christ. All right. Yeah, I think that's right. what we're getting at. Well, fascinating. And this disciple is the patron saint of Scotland. The flag of Scotland has to do with St. Andrew's saltier cross which is the cross that he was martyred on ah. it's a a cross that's shaped like an x and trying to find any kind of connection between a battle and saint andrew was tough but uh, on scotland's tourist website actually i learned that in 800 a.d king angus of the picts facing a larger army of saxons at athelstaniford in scotland was overwhelmed by a blinding light the night before the battle during the night he had a dream The message he was given was that he would see a cross in the sky that would conquer his enemies in its name. Hmm. The following morning, King Angus looked into the rising sun and saw the saltier cross in the blinding light. This filled him and his men with great confidence, and they were victorious. From that time, St. Andrew and his saltier cross were adopted as the national symbols for an emerging Scotland. Now, is it possible 
that this cross in the air is what Meg is referring to by saying the angels are in the air. They're talking about this battle that has to do with St. Andrew. Is it possible? This is what it is. It's, I mean, very possibly, I have to believe it. I mean, really, on, on its surface level, it sounds like an airplane battle. Yes, I agree. Eh, no, I, I get the same vibe, though. It does sound like that, right? It sounds a little like... It does. I, I agree. And in fact, in my head, all that's all I picture is airplanes dogfighting while this is going on. Yeah. I don't know what I'm talking yeah. about, James. I'm no uh, history scholar, okay? What do I know? Well, we know enough about Jack White to get through a podcast, Paul, so there's that. You can hang your hat on that. Just, <laughs> speaking of getting through this podcast. Yes. Uh, some relics of St. Andrew are in St. Mary's Roman Catholic Cathedral in Edinburgh, Scotland, and the Church of St. Andrew in and St. Albert, Warsaw, Poland, hmm. uh, and then other smaller reliquaries throughout the world. But Poland and Scotland, two of the places where Jack has descended from, mm-hmm. and they, they loom large in his heritage. Yes. And do you know what relics are, Paul? I mean, relics could be any number of things, James. Well, yeah, they, they could be fragments of possessions, possibly owned by the saint, po- possibly... It could be... S- skeletal remains. Ske- it could be skeletal remains. I really thought this was going to be a cream soda setup, but I, I guess not. Um, the, it, yeah, those remains could be wearing some kind of garb, perhaps. They could be wearing some... They some... could be wearing... It could be wearing a rag and bone! Rag and bone! Rag and bone! Is that next? I thought it was cream soda. No, 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 no. This is the... The part one of two-part Rag and Bone segments Whoa. in our show, Paul. Whoa. <laughs> Paul, would you like to explain Rag and Bone for our fine audience out there? Rag and Bone is the segment of the show where we talk about the weird and strange and unusual in Jack White's world, and we give it to you here in this segment we call Rag and Bone on, an, on a show where we happen to be talking about an album that features the song Rag and Bone that now I can't listen to because it's been ruined for me forever by this show. We are aware it's confusing, and there are going to be two segments okay. of Ragged Bone this week. I'm ready for it, and as well as this, as well as the song. All right, be prepared Fair for enough. more. What do we got, James? Hit me. A local Scottish superstition uses the cross of Saint Andrew as a hex sign on the fireplaces in Northern England and Scotland to prevent witches from flying down the chimney and entering the house to do mischief. <laughs> By placing the Saint Andrew's cross on one of the fireplace posts or lintels, witches are prevented from entering through this opening. In this case, it is similar to a witch ball. Wow. Although the cross will actively prevent witches from entering, the witch ball will passively delay or entice the witch. Perhaps entrap it. That, thank you, Wikipedia, for that. So, Paul, this 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 ragged bone, uh, it, it happens to be just a little little witch deterrent. There's, yeah, it keeps keeps yeah. the witches away. Saint Andrews. This battle is is in the air on broomsticks. Yeah, you know those poor people in the uh, wilderness dealing with the bell witch, or or possibly <laughs> their horrible mouse infestation, uh, would would really have benefited from one of these things on the on the chimney, James. I think. Are they coming into yeah, the I'll... chimney? Are they like Santa Clausing in? Or they are. How are the witches getting in? Is what I'm wondering. Well, they put them on the fireplace posts, so yes, they are coming in definitely through the chimney. There's a big witch problem in, in this part of town. S- s- Santa Claus style. So what? What was they, the what was the fear 
in, I'm guessing, Dickensian <laughs> England of just intruders scaling your chimney. How often did that happen? There seems to be a lot of lore connected to this, both good and bad, you know? They're either bringing you treats or to hex your child. <laughs> I just like the idea of there being like a Dark Ages version of like pest control <laughs> coming in and like they're they're spraying for roaches. They're putting down that little paste. Uh, they're coming in. They're looking under cabinets for for little mouse holes. Yeah. Well, I see your yeah, I see your problem right there. Yeah, you got a uh, yeah. You you didn't hang any shit on your fireplace. Yep. I don't see any shit on your fireplace now. If you're gonna want. To get rid of that, well, oh, wait a minute. Oh, God, that 1890s chalupa is not agreeing with me. I assume it's made from some sort of liver, possibly a pie. Uh, what you're going to want to do, okay, is you're going to want to go ahead and take uh, take this little here symbol there, and then that's going to, when them witches come flying up, they're going to come and they're going to come and they're gonna try and squeeze down that chimney. And what they're, what they're going to do is they're going to be blocked by it all right they're not going to be able to get in into this uh chimney but but if you would like some gifts or perhaps a pleasant candy cane you could hang your sock there and a uh an obese man such as myself will happily climb down your chimney and give your children nasty candy inside of their footwear uh, but what you're gonna want to do definitely is get some on that fireplace pretty quickly because you know what they say if you see one witch, there's at least a hundred more. Yeah, there's a hundred more where you can't see them. And I'm going to go ahead and return to the future where I, I think I am from in this fiction. And I hope you don't does die of he, the plague. Does that mean he came back from the future, got a little hungry before seeing this house yeah, and had ate, an 1890s an English chalupa, chalupa? In which, which yeah. I assume he invented because he knew of the chalupa. He brought this well, information what else was he back gonna in time. Do? Yeah. He, he had Gray's Chalupa Almanac. Buttheads. Paul, and that's, that's one of this week's Ragamona. I saw some stuff in your yard. Are you oh. going to give it to us? Oh, Meg, don't be rude. That was supposed to be for, for episode one. Okay, well. Full disclosure. And we got two. Paul, that's going to lead us right on to side three. Oh, boy. There's no fancy name for this one. It's just side three. It's about to get to the point where I really like the album again. There's just a lull. There's like a lull in the middle there. We we come to a little cream soda. Cream Soda, there's not much information on the internet about it. There's a little bit, but Jack is quoted as saying about Little Cream Soda, uh, we have another song on this album called Little Cream Soda. 
which was a song that my nephew had given me a bootleg of, his nephew being Ben Blackwell, actually. Oh. He said, I sort of made it up in the middle of a set during one of our shows. I didn't even remember playing it. He gave it to me and said, you should check this out. And I thought, this is an interesting way of attacking writing a song, too. Something we'd made up during a show. Now let's try to give it life and make it an album track. We wow. altered some of the lyrics, added some changes, different things like that. We made a studio song out of it. We'd never done that before either, so that was fun. That's why there's little information on this, Paul. Wow. Because it's very very straightforward. It's uh, it's kind of funny. That, that song reminds me of, like, Handsprings or one of those really early tracks of his where there's a lot of sort of vamping going on in the lyrics and almost this kind of, like, cabaret-style setup for a song where it's like there's mm-hmm. a lot of spoken word and things like that going on. And so I, it, it, does, yeah. uh, it does sound consistent with that era. You know, it definitely has that handsprings vibe to it where it's like beat poetry almost for a little bit and then into uh, like a blues riff. Yeah. With handsprings. Right, right, right. I like Um, it, though. I like the song. It it does. It's it's got a hardness to it. And the the lyrics are are actually, you know, pretty, pretty good, pretty insightful, sophisticated for for the Mm -hmm. backing, the simplistic backing. And I think I said it earlier, but this and Bone Broke, even before I knew this information always stuck out to me as... Yeah, early early stripesy didn't didn't fit on the album. Yeah, but you know I enjoy them. I, they're just I could hear him playing this with like Two Star Tabernacle or something. Like yeah, totally cool. And Paul, that brings us into our, our next song, <laughs> which we you can tell it's the next song and not a segment because we're just gonna say the next song is Rag and Bone. Yeah, so finally, we're talking about Rag and Bone. James, I'm dying to know something about this song other than the fact that I can now no longer <laughs> listen to it. Yeah, no, it's been ruined for me, too, completely. I gotta say, I love this song, and messing around with the guys in the studio those few times we did, uh, we played this one and just had such a fun time playing it. It is a great song to play with a group of people. It's a lot of fun. Mm, yeah, I can see that. This song mixes up music and spoken word. Similarly to, again, Handsprings, you know, there's there's a lot of just dialogue in it. Yeah. And I'm sure you could do a lot with that while playing it live. That would be fun. Yeah, the tune follows Jack and Meg as rag and bone collectors. A rag and bone collector is someone who collects unwanted household items and sells them to merchants. They were largely prevalent in 19th century England and in Europe, and they would scavenge for cloth rags and also for bones and, and other such things like ivory uh, and knife handles and that kind of stuff, and also scrap metals and other scraps. And They'd sell them. Basically, yeah. it was like the poor, the, you know, like a guy taking cans and giving it to a recycling center. Right. Yeah, it's another infusion of England into this album, which actually is surprisingly a little more prevalent than the, the Hispanic vibe. And Jack took this idea again from his wife, Karen Elson, yeah. uh, who had apparently told Jack that when she was younger, she wanted to go away with the rag and bone men. To to quote Jack, when she was a little girl, she wanted to run away with the rag and bone men because she thought they were going to an exotic land. <laughs> she tells me these things. 
pretty soon you're playing a riff and yelling, Rag and Bone! Rag and Bone! Right. And it's Jack and Meg running around trying to, to take stuff and reuse it, stuff that no one else wants, mm-hmm. which is kind of a metaphor for Jack's approach to making music. Yeah, I could see that, yeah. He's taking all these old vintage things that nobody wants anymore, and he's making something out of them. Yeah, making make some, some money, money out, out of them at least. least. <laughs> yeah. In an interview with Rolling Stone, he said, uh, I think songwriters are all junk collectors at heart. We take other people's problems and try to make something beautiful out of them. And then in an interview with the the AV Club, he had said, uh, the music was written at my house, but all the dialogue was written in the studio. We actually have three different versions of that song, and I was worried that the version we have on the album now would be a little too funny and that people wouldn't get the metaphor because it was just too humorous. For a while there, mm-hmm. we couldn't. we went back and forth deciding if we should put it on the record. The last second, we said, eh, forget it. Let's see what happens. And I'm glad we did, because people have responded to it really well. So there's two other versions out there that are floating about. Interesting. Different dialogue. I would love it if he put that out as like one of those vault-specific 45s or something, like a Rag and Bone 45. I don't know why you would do that. Well, Paul, it's funny you say that, because there is a Rag and Bone single. You know what? I do know this, because when I was looking up the the Greatest Hits album, I found that on there. I was like, what the hell is this? But I don't know anything about it. Yeah, the single came free with NME magazine, and it was a whole 45, sleeve and all, and a color vinyl record. It was a fully red record with a with a skeletal horse on the cover, which, because it came free with this magazine, dirt cheap on the collector's market. It's oh, like, okay. But it's a really cool record because it's colored vinyl. It's It's got the whole thing, the whole sticker and everything. Yeah. I'll seek it um, out. Well, Paul... I'll just have to turn into you so that I could seek it out as well, because (laughs) that might bring us to our next song. I'm slowly turning into you. Ah, one of my favorites. I'm slowly turning into you, but you don't know this. So true. You say I'm lying, I'm never going to tell you the truth. But your face is getting older. I love this song. Very memorable. I have a distinct memory of slowly turning into you being played on the loudspeaker at a Best Buy as I walked in, (laughs) I believe, to go buy this album and hearing that just in the public space and just thinking, wow, this this really penetrated the zeitgeist there. Although I guess not not really a single, it's just sort of a, a uh, an FM track you might call it. Known known in uh, live performance for Jack pausing and allowing the crowd to fill in the uh, little beat there because he goes ding ding ding, wow, and then he goes yeah, you know. He very clearly has fun playing this one live, is what I'm saying. He loves crowd participation, yes. and this is a a crowd participation song. Yes, very anthemy in that regard. Mm-hmm. He actually wrote this song specifically with. Michelle Gondry in mind Ooh. without having talked to Michelle Gondry ab- about it originally. So he, he wrote it like saying, I wonder what this guy can do with this song. He, he's quoted as saying, uh, there's a song on this album called I'm Slowly Turning Into You, which is based on this Michelle Gondry video treatment. I wrote a couple of verses for it back when we were working on Get Behind Me Satan, ah. but I didn't have time to finish it. There were too many songs, so we didn't get around to that until we started working on this album. We thought, wow. hey, we should go back and revisit that song and see if we can give it life again. Wow. I wonder if there's a Satan era cut that exists somewhere, you know? I feel like there's got to be at least 
a snippet that he has so that he would remember the chord changes and stuff like as a demo one day when we get like a really nice like um re-release with a bunch of bonus tracks on here i hope we get all that crap because i would love to hear this it does sound like it uh, like it's from that era a little bit but it's i could i could hear a marimba factoring into this song i'm happy <laughs> it would have changed the dynamic of that record a bunch if that was yeah. on there because it would have overshadowed i felt like a lot it would have also changed the tone of the song too i feel like the song would have been a little more dark, a little more, yeah, like angry that he's turning into you. Whereas this one's kind of like a little hopeful. Like he's sort of like (laughs) a little happy about it. You know, he wrote it, like I said, with, with Michelle in mind, he said, uh, when it comes to Michelle, I, I almost don't even care what the treatment or the idea is. I just want to work with him. I just, I was just watching his video today. The Paul McCartney video he directed. Ah, dance tonight. Uh, which is a good video. If none of you have seen it, go go watch that. So that's the uh, Beatle connection. Ring ring the Beatle bell. Somebody ringing the bell. And then he continues, uh, and just the tiny little things I know he puts in there that can only be seen if you watch it multiple times are amazing. And in an age of any everything being gimme, 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 now, 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 he sticks out like a sore thumb. I like the fact that he's very anti that. Man, there's a, there's a lot that he has to say on this. So I'll just, I'll, I'll kick through some of these quotes if you don't mind paul just pound pound them through james pound them through all right when you see something cool for example on a video a teenager's first thought is oh they did that on a computer but when i watch a michelle gondry video my first thought is wow how did he do that because i know that he probably didn't do it on a computer and that's great okay thanks jack <laughs> satan was a bad time there's a track on this new album i'm slowly turning into you we had cooking during satan i remember there being a positive slant to the song at first a couple of lines that said, but I'm proud to be you. But I guess I just wasn't feeling the bright side very much at all during Satan. Yeah. Uh, so like I said, it probably would have been a different version. Yes. And then lastly, when someone comes into your life, you have to decide which you are you going to give them. A lot of times in bad relationships, you give them the fake version. And that's why it doesn't end up working out. Hmm. It's getting a little deep there. That's fair. It's a fair statement. Yeah. Putting on masks, all that. He's acting a little like a martyr, you might say. You you might indeed, because, Paul, that brings us to Side Fower. <laughs> side which Fower? Is, yes, F-O-W-E-R, Side Fower. This, these three songs we're about to talk about are... My three sons. Th- it's three of some of the strongest tunes I think that man has ever written. A Martyr for My Love for You kicks it off. And it's a great, sophisticated ballad, but it's also got tooth to it. It switches styles, it switches moods. It's it's a really, really tight rock and roll song. Yeah, and a good one-two punch after I'm slowly turning into you. Um, yeah. Both of those songs fit well next to each other. Both kind of sad, lovelorn songs in a way. But yeah, Martyr for My Love for You, it's it's a, a, a story that has... It's a song that has a clear story in it. You know, it's a guy who... I think uh, a lot of a lot of people have been in this situation, whether it be a uh, guy, girl, doesn't matter. But thinking you're overthinking things too much and coming up with reasons that you shouldn't be in a relationship and being like, well, you probably you're going to get sick of me. You're you're probably sick of me already. And so it kind of spirals into this thing. And yeah, it's it's an interesting song and, and I think uh, very relatable in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Yeah. In uh, in August of 2007, in an interview with Guitar World, they asked if this song, to quote the this article I was I was pulling from, which has the narrator pinning for a leggy teen girl pining 
to, was his contribution to the great genre of jailbait song? White answered, <laughs> I don't know because I'm not sure who this character is. How old is he? The guy who's singing. Maybe he's 16, just like the girl. The main idea is that the guy is going to make a sacrifice and not ever explore the idea of having a relationship with this girl because he knows it's going to end up that way. What if we were smart as to do that in real life? Most people, when they start a relationship, don't say, oh, come on, we know how this is going to end. Let's not even bother. The idea is what's the difference between negative negativity and realism? They're very close. A lot of things I say sound realistic in my mind, but to other people, they may sound very negative. Mm. Yeah. Sums up the song. Yeah. Yeah. Sums up how I talk about side three. Uh, <laughs> you might think it's negative, but it's realistic in your mind. Um, yeah. So that, that yeah. kind of... You psych yourself out. Yeah. Insecurities that happen with young people. Right. Yeah. yeah. Jack can really tap into that teenage feeling, which is not to say his music isn't... is teenage or unsophisticated, but he's he's got a knack for that part of life that... Mm evokes certain kinds of very very potent emotions right and um an acoustic version of this song appears on the single on the b-side of the single you don't know what love is it's a it's a pretty cool version which we didn't we didn't i don't think touched on too much but that was a single release off the album that actually went to number 18 in the uk and spent a week in the top 40 and another two in the top 100 yikes so that's uh very surprising i mean it's a great song i love that song it was uh, number nine in the alt-rock tracks in the U.S., too. Uh, it's released in September of 2007. I, I, uh, I, I, I had a lot of information on some of the other singles here I hadn't, I hadn't brought up. But, yeah, that was one of, that was one of them I thought was interesting. I, you don't think of this one as a hit, but it kind of was. If I don't mention the next song, Paul, I'm going to catch hail. Because the next song... I love Catch Hell Blues. we talk about those coolest songs you ever heard like if this album was nothing but icky thump and catch hell blues it would still be the best jack white album i, I keep saying that like i love i like get by me saying more but like man these are good songs though these are yeah. real good songs though catch hell is really good it's got that it evokes it's like the graduation of i fought piranhas it's like i fought piranhas but like after i went on tour with the racking tours so now i know how to really fight piranhas you know what i mean It's one of the the two 
really kick-ass blues songs on this album too with 300 mile per hour torrential outpour blues at the beginning and catch hell blues at the end and it it kind of I, it, it evokes the best of what jack white can do i think yeah a lot of delta blues influence in there but uh just really beautiful slide beautiful beautiful slide guitar um, it's uh it's 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 the pinnacle of jack tapping into that punk's thing and doing the blues with it it's just it's it's a song that builds each section of the song builds and builds and builds and then it cracks and then it builds again and it's just a signifier of his solo career like this one and icky thump i think showed us what he was gonna be doing kind of thing you know for for his for his solo albums like this is this is how it's done and nothing says pinnacle quite like being in the remake of footloose (laughs) oh my god was it really it was paul in fact no come on plays a major role in the remake of footloose stop it let's get into a little bit of footloose here oh do we have to Craig, Craig Brewer, the, the director of the new the new version of Footloose, said, Well, that was the first thing I thought of, actually, as a matter of fact. If you talk to the president of Paramount, he'll tell you the same thing. What I did when I came in, and when I pitch a movie, I bring a boombox with me. And I have a little iPod oh, that's attached to f- it. Oh, f- f- and, I score oh. My, and I score my pitch sessions. Oh. And I'll never forget knowing in my mind that I'll probably never get Jack to sign off on using Catch Hell Blues. Well, you know, Jack is as he should be, very protective. And I've met him before, and I think he's one of the best, one of the greatest artists we have right now. I think he does the does-to-rock-pop what I try to do with movies, like Footloose, the remake, Paul. And that is infuse Mm -hmm. it with blues. Infuse it with some tradition and heritage beforehand where you don't know you're being exposed to it. But I just remember pitching the angry dance as a matter of fact, almost verbatim, I went into the studio and I had Catch Hell Blues playing and I had the whole Angry Dance, the original. Brewer takes out his iPad and shows me the Angry Dance clip from the original Footloose synced up to Catch Hell Blues. I kind of knew early on what I wanted to do. God, I can't believe I had that, this iPad. But I, uh, I knew it in and out and I came up with a plan before I'd even written the script. Paul Catch Hell Blues helped write the script for Footloose the remake. Oh my god. Dude, this guy directed Black Snake Moan. He did, Paul. And let me let me finish up here, um, because there's some very important things you have to know about Footloose the remake. Luckily, I found out Jack was a Footloose fan, and he saw the clip and he loved it. Paul Jack is a Footloose fan. Yeah. So, Paul, that's an important part of this this song's history. Look, I'm happy I'm happy it's gotten to a movie like it deserves to, but like I would love it if we never talked about this again. <laughs> <laughs> to to just uh to to give a little bit of background on the song before we move on, I found a a, a quote about it from Jack. I hearken back to the days when bands didn't have any overdubs. There are songs on here which are one take which are just me and Meg playing live, like Catch Hell Blues. We're proud of that because we know the conditions it was made under. If people say, I love your song, and I think you spent $600,000 and recorded it on a computer, and it took six months, I mean, what's the big deal? Anybody can do that. But if they love the song, and you can look back at it, and all you had was a book of matches and a screwdriver, 
then you can be proud of that. First of all, that was in one take? Because that's remarkable for one take. All in live, too. That's, that's, like, that is, I, I appreciate it somehow even more. I, and I love this song. That's crazy. I can't believe that. Yeah. And you're not believing it is, is an effect of the cause. I can't come up with a good one. It's the last song in the album, Ball to Victim uh, Cause. <laughs> I guess you have to have a problem if you want to, then a contraption. I love affecting cause it is a the, the the most biting lyrics I think Jack has ever written it's a Jack Diddy but it's also a sophisticated Jack Diddy it's like the graduated my doorbell or something or like my doorbell but when you open the door is like a cougar there and he's gonna kill you um i (laughs) have some weird memories attached to this one um when a uh, a girl i was seeing did me wrong and we had to spend a very very long car ride back from where we were staying together uh sitting in dead silence i think i played this one a few too many times and it might have been kind of like a massive move on my part, but it was also like Jack, like it was like Jack gets it. I think I played this one in Selfish Gene like 20 times each. I was, I was an, ins- I was an insufferable throughout that whole car ride. Oh man, I did not know that. I knew you had some thoughts on it because of her, but, oh man. Yeah, wow, that's, that's something else. I, this song I lump into uh, the group... I lump this song into the group with uh, Want and Able. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, this is this is better. I would than say Able, this though. is vastly superior to Want and Able personally, but I think Jack is going for the same thing in, in both songs. Paul, you, you were you, you sounded like you may have done a real bonehead move there in the car earlier. Real bonehead James, move. James, this, this is a rag and bone. This is our <laughs> second rag and bone. Rag and bone! James, what's our second rag and bone? Our second rag and bone was intended to be only in part two, and the other one is in part one, so that's why there's two. But a Democratic congresswoman, Congresswoman Donna Edwards, quoted this song as a lesson during a debate over whether to shut down the U.S. federal government. Wow. On the floor, she she said uh, she dedicated her speech to America's young people and our seniors and our service members and federal workers who stand to be affected by this government shutdown. If you're heading to the grave, you don't blame the hearse, Edwards told Congress. That's awesome. I am really happy to hear that. She then continued, You seem to forget just how this song started. You just can't take (laughs) the effect and make it the cause, she preached. 
The shutdown was later averted with less than two hours to spare when feuding Democrats who ran the Senate and Republicans who were in charge of the House of Representatives finally agreed to a budget for this year. So Jack White has his place in the friggin' U.S. government. Holy crap. Um, that, that's remarkable. I did not know that. I'm very happy to hear that, especially for a non-album, for a non-single album cut. It's such a weird thing, but that's that's great. We salute you, Donna Edwards. Thank you. And that's yes. that's the conclusion of this week's Rag and the Bones. Oh, the conclusion of Rag and Bones. So let's get on to promotion, Paul, and get out of here. <laughs> All right, promotion and get out of here. So the cover features Jack and Meg dressed as Pearlies, which is an organized charitable tradition of working class culture in London, England. Another English thing. Hmm. They're, they're people who are dressed in, in all pearls and, and give to causes and, you know, have a kind of like the Shriners, you know, they have their own weird quirks and, and do charitable causes. Yeah. The album was first to be signed with Warner Brothers, which was a major thing. You know, Jack had his third man records label, but... Uh, he had Warner Brothers do, you know, distribution and and, and promotion and stuff. And he says uh, about this signing, the White Stripes are a corporation, even if it's not on paper. But, you know, we just signed with Warner Brothers. That wouldn't have been a good move on our second album. Enough time has gone by and we've gained an experience. What did you want from a record label? I want them to sell my record. That's it. Well, I mean, yeah, he's he's coming in there not at the mercy of a a record label. Like, he already has... Coming there with an imprint gives him the certain kind of uh, gives him a measure of control. So it's yes. different than just being a young artist, just starting out and not really knowing what you're doing, and just saying yes. To promote the album before its release, they did a couple different things. They actually turned the defunct Tower Records in Los Angeles into Icky Thump Records, and they played a show there. Oh, I was wondering what that was. I saw pictures of yeah. it. Yeah, they they put like big posters everywhere saying like this is Icky Thump Records, and they they had like they the whole building was dressed in a in a like a giant billboard that said Icky Thump Records, and and they played a, a kick ass show there. They also had distributed custom designed boxes and previewed tracks through of the record through a thing called Ice Cream Man, which is it's a a business that is based on mutual exposure and advertisement in exchange for funding of its operations. They increase word-of-mouth promotion and build a popular association between its sponsors, free ice cream, and the experience of music events. So it's basically an ice cream truck that hands out free at, like, South by Southwest and other assorted shows, Bonnaroo's, your festivals. So what would lay the groundwork probably for his rolling record store, I'd imagine? Possibly, yeah, quite possibly. And then... uh, You know, as we said, uh, aside from being released on CD and vinyl, it was actually released on flash drive, too. Oh, cool. Yeah, they got those little designs and stuff. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Kate's going to talk about those. Yes. Both of those were designed to look like Jack and Meg in their Pearlies outfit. And then a a mono version of the album also uh, kicked off the the Third Man Records vault and is much sought after. And we'll get into that in in a minute. Now, there's a bit of controversy that kind of surrounded the promotion of this album, Paul. Uh, And I don't know how Mm. much of this you've heard. But Q101 had decided, uh, which is a radio station, had decided to leak the album in its entirety, prompting Jack to actually Ooh. call the station from their tour in Spain at the time. The the DJ who, who leaked the album got it as a bootleg from a fan of the show, and she leaked the entire album to promote wow. it, basically, but you know before it came out, and uh, this was DJ Electra. 
was her name. So there's two sides to this story. Jack talks in depth about it. She talks in depth about it. I'll go through it real quick. But uh, her side was, uh, I was extremely, extraordinarily surprised when Jack called, said Spike of the show, who was somebody who worked at the radio station, he said of the call, which came two hours after the album was played at 2 p.m. on Wednesday. I had no idea what his reaction would be because I don't know the dude. In my head, he's this indie rock dude, so the fact that he'd be calling at all was cool to me. But when he was mad, it was a curveball. Spike said White was, in fact, really mad. And though he didn't yell, <laughs> he used words like naive and coward and insulted the DJs like Electra were helping speed the demise of the music industry. Quote, wow. we never said on air how we got it, but I was sent a link to a file. And when we found it online, like we always do, we played it, Spike said, uh, setting similar advanced spins of the station of tracks from the new Linkin Park, Nine Inch Nails and Marilyn Manson albums, all of which he says happened without incident. It's a new time Hmm. in that you don't know what the rules are anymore. We're fighting to stay relevant with people who listen to radio. And if they get something (laughs) three weeks ahead of us, that makes us irrelevant. Spike said that although the White Stripes label, uh, Warner Brothers Records, knew the station was going to play the album, Q101 was served with a cease and desist order five hours after airing and has not played it again. The station also Hmm. honored White's request that the tape of his heated exchange with Electra not be aired. She described on her personal blog, which I had to dig through the archives about it, I felt like I was going to throw up. Weirdest, most surreal conversation of my life. We tried to explain where we were coming from. Someone gave us a copy of the record that we were really excited to play, and the whole experience was an hour-long love fest for him and his band, but he wasn't having it. He hung up very, very angry, and I thought I was going to cry. Electra then continued, I don't think I did anything wrong, and I don't think I'm helping to ruin the music industry. I think I made people excited for the new White Stripes record. Uh, I know that was our intention. I also still think Jack White is is an incredibly talented musician, and I still think the new record is amazing. I just don't think I'll be able to listen to it without feeling like crap for a good long while. So, that's the radio station's side. Jack was asked about it on numerous occasions. I'll just go through a couple things. When you're famous, you're not allowed to have any kind of reaction, unless it's completely positive and saying, I love rainbows and stars on Entertainment Weekly or Entertainment Tonight or whatever these shows are called, White said. But this radio station, (laughs) in this instance, I was having a private conversation with somebody and they wanted to exploit it and make it more press out of the situation. But that's what usually happens nowadays. Jack White, the singer and songwriter, isn't reacting to you. It's the president of Third Man Records, a record label, calling you and asking you for an explanation. Not screaming and yelling at anybody. I'm just saying, who did it? And tell me why you did it. Uh, They reacted like I called up and threatened to burn down the building or something, for God's sake. I think it's a shame for generations coming up that everything is now, 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 and they're getting everything from a mouse click. We have people who get upset that you can only buy a t-shirt at our shows, he laughed. That's upsetting to people. So it's kind of hard in this age where you get everything instantly to tell people that they have to wait. I think everyone is like, big deal, it's not my fault. Everyone's doing it. Everyone's downloading. But it's about the rules and who chooses to follow them, he continues. We're all in business together. Record labels and musicians and songwriters and radio stations and MTV. Everyone's in that together. And if they don't all respect each other, the foundation crumbles. It's obvious. The only other thing I could say about it is that if a movie theater played a movie three weeks before it was supposed to come out, what do you think would happen? The movie theater would probably be shut down. Uh, it's a fair point, and he's not wrong, and it's different than something that had been out already or something like that. This is, I mean, they were essentially contributing to spoiling the record for people 
who might not bu- then buy it, although I'm not quite sure. I, see, I understand the radio station side of it, too, but, like, yeah, they can't do Guys, don't be assholes. Yeah. Like, that's what that comes down to. Like, guys, just don't be don't be assholes. I get why you did it. I get why you chose to be assholes, but you shouldn't be assholes. Right. On the flip side, they didn't replay the album, and they didn't play the conversation between Jack and the, the DJ, which... To be fair, is probably really tempting for a radio station to do, right? Because that would definitely get you know more people listening to you and stuff. So good and bad on both sides, I'd say. I think Jack's obviously in the right with right. this, but you know it's it's a it's a weird situation for everyone to be in. They announce a tour. The White Stripes announce a tour immediately before the uh, <laughs> immediately after the album's released. So the tour will include all ten provinces and three territories of Canada, as well as the remaining 16 states of the United States the band have yet to play. So this is the tour that will end up being the Under Great White Northern Lights tour, and also pretty much spell the end of the band. Yeah, we will get to this tour on a later episode. It will be devastating, I'm sure. Oh, that song at the end. Uh, yes. Jack had a lot of personal growth on this album. He reflected a lot on it. He said, I find a lot of beauty in the presentation. I think over time, as the years have gone on, that's what I've gotten better at. Maybe I haven't gotten better at songwriting, but I've gotten better at presentation of the song, just from a workman's standpoint. I've never believed that it's been our job to become the Beatles. Beetle Bell? Oh, yeah. Uh, this, ba- this band is the opposite of that. We're an anti-evolving band. When we walk out on stage, we have no idea what we're going to do. We don't even know what the first song is going to be. If we ever become the kind of band that played along to a backing track with a huge light show and set list that we've practiced for three months, we couldn't take any pride in that doesn't really become a dangerous proposition at that point yeah i think he's still holding true at least more or less you know to move on to the reception the album won two grammys for best alternative album and best rock performance by a duo or group with vocal got really positive reviews for the most part av club gave it an a minus bbc gave it a really positive review they said at what point does alternative become mainstream six albums in and the white stripes have a big fat Warner's contract in their pocket and Phil Hyde Park in interviews. Jack seems more enamored with his new playmates. The Rack and Tours is the end nigh or if the Detroit blues minimalists still got things to say like all great acts. The answer is a bit of both. While Icky Thump has plenty of overblown moments, it also still contains all the things that made us love them in the first place. Whether they even survive <laughs> such a sea change to make another album was to be seen. We can only hope so. Slant gave it a 3.5 out of 5. They weren't as happy with it, but uh, still pretty good. They said it works often brilliantly in the specific terms of the band's formalism, but where it falls short is in the consistency of its songwriting. There's little fault in the opening three songs, but thereafter the, the songs become increasingly verbose. Loretta Lynn's economy of language, it seems, hasn't stuck with Jack without any of his trademark wit to keep the songs buoyant. I disagree. Oh, but I don't agree with that at all, but yeah. okay. Yeah. Spin gave it three out of five also. They did not like it. Spin Magazine, they called it noisy, cranky, the least fun album of their career. Okay. But we, we'll end on a positive note here. NME gave it a four and a half out of five. Icky Thump is brilliant. There's no way around that. We've come to expect nothing less from the White Stripes, but it still sends a jolt down the spine when you hear them at the very apex of their abilities. Some might consider this record a little too eclectic zipping as it does between genres and styles like a red and white magpie, but it'll take a monumental effort for any band this year to top it. And mm. That surprises me that it's so lukewarm, but whatever. Uh, it's it's It never dips below three. Everybody's like either it's good, it's a good White Stripes album, or it's an amazing White Stripes album. So regardless, 
it's still good. I think Spins was the least positive out of all of them. Lastly, Iggy Thump was used in the new Justice League trailer with Warner Brothers. Uh, uh, they share yes. the rights to the song. Yes, it was. And also, it is it is widely known now in this past year because it came, became a political point in 2016's presidential election when there was an unlicensed promotional usage of Seven Nation Army and uh, Jack and Third Man Records put out Icky Trump t-shirts and bumper stickers. Icky Thump having an immigration-based theme kind of helped further the point that he was making. That's going to do it, Paul, for Icky Thump. Well, we first got to rate it, James. We got to rate this album. So we're going to rate it out of three. We have the like it, love it, gotta have it model. James, (laughs) you go first. Oh, Paul, uh, this album is easily in my top albums. Uh, It is easily my favorite White Stripes album of all time. I love this album to death. I have fond memories of listening to it in the car with you for the first time after purchasing it. I think we both purchased it at the same time. Paul, I can't give it any less. Three men. Three out of three men for this album. I, too, will give it a three out of three men. I am just going to front load my rating right there and say that I have fond memories of listening to this one. We saw this tour. Uh, it is when my fandom was in full swing, and it's uh, it was an exciting time to be a White Stripes fan. And I remember listening to this album in the car with you in a parking lot with some with some friends on a uh, on a summer's night, and uh, it was very romantic. <laughs> and uh, I will always, uh, I will always think fondly of this album. And, but, but honestly, it has some of my favorite Jack songs on it. So three out of three men from me. Fantastic! And Paul, there couldn't be a better time to to throw it to our third woman this week. Let's throw it to our third woman for this week. So we'd like to welcome our third woman this week. We have Miss Kate McCoy returning for the second time. How's it going, Kate? Hello. It's nice to be Kate, back. Kate, you're back. Nice you're to be back. back. Thank you. Thanks for coming back. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the reasons that we, we brought you back here, not only is it because you're a great guest and a very uh, fun person to talk to, but last time you were on, you uh, you had mentioned that you have an Icky Thump mono pressing. I Yes. Uh, which is great because this week we're talking about Icky Thump. And so we thought we'd uh, we'd discuss that with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> James was giving me the education on this one because I had really no idea about how drastic the difference was. But apparently it's pretty evident, right? The uh, the difference in those two. I mean, I'm more versed in like the differences between like Beatle, mono and stereo stuff. But I had no idea Jack had this distinctly different thing. So, yeah, tell us about that. I'm, I'm dying to know. I've never heard it. So um, I think that... There are digital copies out there, like on the interwebs. I feel like people listening to this show have digital copies. What I like about the mono the most is that I feel like you can hear Meg a little, like more. Um, okay. Like in Rag and Bone, I think that I have sort of likened it to the Icky Thump CD, which I also have and listen to in my car. Uh-huh. But the actual the records are are very different, and I feel like the voices come through. I just like the sound. Some of the people that have these records, you know, keep them sealed, which I get because they say, oh, you know, I have a, a black copy and I, I'll listen to that or whatever. But these are two really two different records. I think, mm-hmm. you know, I I feel like I hear a difference and I'm 
I'm a novice at that. So it's a good, it's an excellent record. My copy's open. Like I brought it down. Like I have it. I mean, I know they can't see, but I brought it, you know, so you guys can see it because I just think Ooh. that's such a, such a pretty it's picture. Very, wow. I also think this is kind of a neat time in like white stripes history because they're really getting into merch. And before you even knew what you had, you you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it. You want to sell it well. I had my first real job during this time phase, and I had like some disposable income because I was still kind of living in a crappy apartment, and I, I didn't realize like all the other stuff that I could be like spending money on. So I was actually able to spend some money. But like one of the cool things was they came out with that icky promo disc that a lot of people yeah. have. So it's wow. got, you know, like the front of Jack and Megan, these beautiful outfits. Um, yeah. And then the back. Yeah, they're on their full Pearly's gear. Yeah, and these, and this single, I think, is is also different. Like this, the Icky Thump on this, the mono, and then the regular black record are all a little bit different. And I, I feel like I hear that when I say it, but I think that, like, the discussion forums, like White Swirl, certainly the Little mm-hmm. Room, like, all, I think all of... I think everybody who studies this and has more of a keen ear says that they hear a difference between the three. Yeah, it's funny you say that because a friend of the show, constant friend of the show, Callie Durga, as you know, gave us uh, quite a bit of insight on that, actually, that didn't make it into this show because it came afterwards. But there was a whole discussion about the compression issues that are happening on the Icky Thump CD and then uh, all the distortion and fans getting so agitated i would say for lack of a better term with the cd version and the different versions in general that jack white actually interjected and wrote basically like a two-page letter yes uh, discussing (laughs) why he mixed it the way he did or had it mixed the way he did and exactly what is happening and and you know why yes. the CD sounds the way it does. And it, it was interesting to me. Have you guys, so that's not like, that's, I feel like the little, it was before the, it was before everybody made the switch over to like, it was really when the little room was actually really little. And it, it, I think that mm-hmm. it has since made a jump to another, it seems like all of what Jack wrote is gone now, but I think that people have like, copies like screenshotted copies did Callie send that to you of course she'll have yes, it like yes. I feel like Tam knows exactly where everything <laughs> is so okay so you got to see that because I think that that's really yeah cool I read too. the whole thing and it's it's super interesting because it's weird Jack White is actually defending a digital format or a digital process right. over an analog process for pretty good reason his reasoning basically summed up is it's way too expensive to to do two separate mixes because you know, to do an analog and a digital mix. And, you know, he's already doing some for the vinyl mix. And I, he, he was he was basically just saying, like, it's really expensive and we don't have the machinery to do this. I don't believe it. You're meant to come down here and defend me against these characters. And the only one I've got on my side is the blood-sucking lawyer. And for some things like a crossfade, you need three machines in order to, to do a crossfade. And he only has one and he doesn't feel like buying two more because <laughs> they're really expensive. Yeah. So it's it's interesting stuff. Do you have a preference? Is it uh, CD, mono, or vinyl? It's always going to be the mono. I mean, I just okay. feel like it's... I just <laughs> it's, it's really one of my favorite records. I also think that it's a, you know, like it's a special record and I think we, I think everybody who's kind of a collector of White Stripe stuff, this is the one that is like the hardest to get. 
I got to go on that great behind the scenes tour with Ben Blackwell and he said, you know, now when they do vaults, they always, you know, have some additional vaults pressed, you know, mm. in, when in case stuff goes wrong or they have to send people or whatever. But he said with Icky Thump, they literally, the people that subscribe, that's, that was essentially how many they made. And at the time wow. of our like tour, he even said, we don't really even have a good copy here in, in the <laughs> storefront for archival purposes. You know, just because we sent, we literally sent them all out, and he was like, "And they, there will not be more of them. Like, don't, don't part with those if you can, if you can help it." And I thought it was interesting that Jarrett said that too. You know, if I had an Ikimano, I don't know that I get rid of it because Jarrett got rid of his Meg pick disc that you can literally right. only get from Meg. <laughs> okay, so I I forgot to actually ask him about that on the show. What does that mean? So when Icky Thump came out, like the promo for just the you know the seven inch that they sent out, you know, it was this beautiful picture of Jack and Meg. Right. So a lot of a lot of people have these, and then on the back, you know, it has their sure. their outfits or whatever. But I guess that they also made this copy, which is just beautiful Meg against like some yeah what appears to be like white paneling and a Jack on the back, which is you know also a great picture of Jack, but come on, let's talk about the Meg. Um, and so <laughs> they made, I'd, I've like heard 200 copies or a hundred, I don't know, like a low number, 100 to 300 copies. And they gave Meg this box of records and they were like, you can give them out. So if somebody has one, they got it from Meg. And I don't know if you guys ever have seen Ben Blackwell's like crate diggers out, like episode. No. He talks a good one. It's on YouTube. It's a good one to, and it's probably archived on crate diggers, but he talks about like albums that he loves that he like keeps out all the time. It's, it looks like sort of like he has a window in the room where he keeps his vinyl. And this is one of the albums that like sits atop of that window. Um, and he <laughs> wow. said, you know, it's just one of the prettiest. It's, it's just a great record. And it's just one of the ones that I want to see every day. And it's interesting because he's literally surrounded by like probably thousands of, and he only really, I think, collects seven inch records. I'm sure he has some 12 inches too, but he really only collects seven inches. And I just thought that was kind of a special thing too. So the deal is if you have one of these, you've usually gotten it from Meg White or you have purchased it from someone who has gotten it from Meg White. But it started with Meg. Yeah. Yeah. So this, yeah. So it was, it was in Meg's cute little drumming hands. <laughs> At some point, that is so wild. That is. So I'm curious wild. if if Ben Blackwell uh, prefers that record or the purple seven inch of the uh, the vault single from uh, Vault Thirty that he purchased. <laughs> I don't know oh, if yeah. you saw that that drama that went on with that eBay seller. Oh boy, that's a good question. I don't know. I always he's. I love when he writes about stuff or when he gets interviewed and he kind of talks about stuff like that. I just. I think he's a great speaker. I think he's a great writer. I think it's just always kind of funny to hear like what he has to say. Mm-hmm. So, how did you get your hands on one? So, I have no problem sharing the story. Um, I this was. I mean, this was my holy grail of records. I was like, oh, I'll never have that. You know, I had kind of even talked about. I really, you know, just have admired Meg White for a long time. When we did the Get Behind Me Satan album, like I was kind of sick throughout like the whole year of two thousand and five, like just not very well, and so. I always say that Get Behind Me Satan came out like kind of during the worst year and Icky Thump came out like during my first year like my first best year after it was like my Britney Spears comeback year but (laughs) but not you know it was just a good year so really I wanted one I 
I had the Get Behind Me Satan promo, and I thought that was pretty special. But getting something that's just specific to Meg White, I thought was pretty special too. Jarrett was selling one because I think he, I think he said in your episode he was looking to fund, you know, another project. And literally, just one night, I happened to be on Facebook at the right time, and he's like, "For sale, you know, I'm thinking about this." I don't want to have to do this, but uh, I'm thinking about this. And I just messaged him right away, and I was like, "How much do you want? Tell me. I'll pay. I'll PayPal you right now." <laughs> um, wow! But it was cool because what he said was that Meg, he had wanted one, and I think that he, you know, living in Detroit. It's my, and I don't want to speak for Jared at all, but it's just my impression that he knows Meg and he wanted one for his birthday. The word got to her that that's what he wanted. And, and she just came to where, I don't know if it was a birthday party or if it was like where he was working and just showed up and like <laughs> handed him the pick disc. Like, here you go, buddy. Happy birthday. And um, what is this guy's life? It's insane. I know. I, like, like, I, like living the dream. <laughs> like we all, like, it's so funny because I always... <laughs> I'm so excited to always see what he's doing, but I also like sometimes find myself thinking like, gosh, like I hope that I'm doing something awesome like that one day. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm a good deal older than, than Jared. You're also in Nashville schmoozing it up at all these events, you know, I know we're, I'm insanely jealous of, of your, your locale right now. It's, uh, yeah. So you're a part of the history that we're learning about. You're like our our woman on the ground. You're the one that tells us what's really going on in Nashville because we have no idea. We're just so far removed. You guys, you have to make the, you know, like, and, you know, this time next week, we'll all be camping out. Like, I'm assuming that I'll be down in Third Man on, even if I, I don't know that I'll stay overnight, but even if I don't stay overnight, I'm definitely going down. Um, You know, they're going to have a cookout. They have one every year. And it's, but it's, and there is a rumor through social media that Jarrett is coming to Nashville yes. for Record Store Day, which I think... No, he said he was coming down south uh, yeah. when we talked to him. So yeah. we are... So I saw that on Facebook, and I also heard it on your podcast. I don't know if it's for Record Store Day or not, but, you know, it's always really cool to meet people like that. I guess I first encountered Jarrett or just knew of who he was because he had a little room account. And then, you know, as we all kind of moved over to Facebook and those Facebook groups took off, you know, very quickly. I mean, and I have, you know, I have several releases from his label as well so that's kind of cool us too (laughs) i feel like we should get in on that little room business because that was um before me and paul really tried to get into the scene like we were very isolated if fans we were like in new jersey thinking we're the only fans in our town Uh, (laughs) at least that was my impression i was like uh i i don't know i i didn't think anybody else was as um Obsessed as as I was at the time, but it turns out I was wrong, and there were plenty of people doing it. Lots, so. of, yes, lots of lots of obsession. I think one of the things that I still like about it. I mean, it's obviously like much. It's easier to be on the Facebook groups now to talk about this kind of stuff. Um, yeah. But one of the things that's so nice about the little room is really like that was my kind of first entry into it too. Even though I was later to the game, but you can go back and you can look through all of these threads and read up on you know an album or a song or a a show like i mean everybody who ever went to a show usually you know does a write-up and says this was my experience you know some are longer than others or more detailed than others my favorite 
post of all time, and I don't know his name in real life. It's Avard in the little room, but um, when Jack was doing the Lazaretto tour, he did this post about how he was not going to stand outside New York to see this show in Madison Square Garden to get on the rail. So he said the post was titled, like, Anti-Rail Coat Room, and it was like, I will watch your coat and your stuff if you get me a print. And so he, like, stood at the back with his security guard, and his write-up of it is his... It's just so funny. The whole thing is funny. If I need, like, a pick-me-up or a laugh, like, I will go back and look at that post because it makes me laugh so much. But it also, there's a wealth of knowledge there from all kinds of people, like, people who who kind of faded away, like, over time. Like, people ended up, like, meeting and dating and getting married. And, you know, that's kind of cool to see, too. Like, it was, you know, it was kind of a a match.com, I guess, for some people, but, but certainly lots of... Lots of people who were living in Detroit and who who knew what the White Stripes were like and what they were about. and But just a great resource. So even if you join late, I think better late than never on this one. Yeah. yeah. A quick word on those prints. Our buddy Mike bought the last one at the kiosk uh, when we were at that show and the uh, there was another concert goer who was trying desperately to buy one who was super pissed at Mike yeah. for getting the very last yeah. one. Yeah. And uh, there was there was some competition over those things and I had, ne- I had never really understood that because I was never a collector of the posters or anything like that so I had no conception of this but the depths to which people go through to get those you know because they're unique here's a hint Paul and if uh, if yeah. you don't want to spend the time online, just go to animalrummy.com and purchase the excess. So, you know, it's so it's so surreal that we're talking about Icky Thump because it's literally the, you know, right now we're at the 10 year anniversary of this record mm-hmm. that was literally the yeah. last record that, you know, the White Stripes put out. It's like it's so just in kind of the lead up when I heard last week's podcast. But as we kind of approach Record Store Day. And, you know, we're thinking about this. Like, none of us had any idea 10 years ago that this was it for our favorite band. I mean, like, I feel like so many, just like you guys, I sort of felt isolated, like, where I was. Because I don't think I was living, no, I was visiting Nashville, but I, I hadn't moved here fully yet. So I worked for the school. So I had, like, all these huge chunks of time off that I could come and stay. It was just interesting, like... The White Stripes celebrated their 10th anniversary in the summer with the under great white northern lights. I try not to covet posters too much. I think it's just a slippery slope, but even I looked long and hard to find a copy of the Emerald, the Emerald City print that he did for um, for the White Stripes, for Under Great White Northern Lights. You'd, it's a huge print, but it's so, so lovely. And so I'm assuming that he did all of the posters for this he tour, did a great tour. He did a great number of them, yeah. And, and even the a lot of the artwork for the singles and some stuff for for assorted album stuff. He didn't do obviously the cover. Um, Autumn DeWild. Oh yeah, so she so that's who photographed um, under Great White Northern Lights as well, and that beautiful oh, that would make sense. Yeah, yeah. the the photo book that comes yeah. with that set were all of her photographs. And then a couple years ago, Third Man was just like, "Hey, we're gonna sell some extra prints that we have from her." And it was I think from all of all of them were mostly from that tour, but they were just I mean she's a great photographer. Yeah, yeah, they're going for fifteen hundred dollars, but. By the way, um, ah, <laughs> on eBay, like that's how much you no. can sell them for. 
This is through a gallery called the Morrison Hotel. That's insanity. That's insane. I think Third Man sold them for like 20 or 30 bucks. Like it wasn't. <laughs> it was affordable. Yeah. We can charge anything we want. 2000 a day, 10000 a day, and people will pay it. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, Rob Jones is also coming full circle this year, putting out a Tin Man White Stripes t-shirt for a record store day. I saw that. I saw that. Nice. I saw that on the website. I saw. I, I, I had kind of looked over the record store day stuff, and I was like, "Oh, it's exciting!" I saw that he had. I saw that he was doing some new stuff for it, so that is exciting. Mm-hmm. We uh, we talked a little bit about this in the show, but and you mentioned it earlier. I can't believe it's been ten years since that album came out, and we didn't know that was going to be the last one. But I have a lot of fond memories of listening to that with James for the first time and getting to know it, and and hearing a new White Stripes record. What I didn't realize was going to be the last time I would hear I that kind of. New, new content but what were your initial impressions of the record objectively speaking you had been a fan for a little while what were your initial sort of like standout tracks what were you like mm, maybe that's not my favorite like initial impressions I just like right out the gate I loved it I thought you know leading off with Icky Thump just that those big like smashing crashing drums and I also again you know I'm always listening and looking at Meg's drumming like I just thought this is in hindsight what a perfect like swan song but at the time I was like it just keeps getting better like it just keeps getting better I thought Icky Thump was a great song I thought the the message was relevant mm. you know it's it's relevant today but it was kind of interesting because I just thought it was it was such a great song but I you know I did I just loved the album like right out the gate it was and it was a great CD to have in your car and just kind of like really you know <laughs> kind of you know and yeah. still sometimes I think you know when you have a bad day just to kind of like listen to that you're just like yes like I can you know get through it or whatever but I just I loved it I remember learning how to play Icky Thump on the drums and hmm. I asked like a really I would call him my drum teacher but he's really just sort of like a you know I will ask questions I think when you're trying to teach yourself drums sometimes you need somebody to guide you and he was like oh you're missing a ghost note and I was like what's a ghost note but it's just funny because I think we're all seeing Meg sort of now on a, even a different level I know that they they toured for this and they toured for Under Great White Northern Lights a little but you know they also cut their tour short you know during this this time as well and yeah because of her anxiety yeah you know but it was just so ferocious and she seemed just like really confident and strong on the drums and almost sort of like she and it seemed like maybe in the past she'd been taking more cues from jack as to how she was going to respond but really it seems like in in this album and certainly like in the live shows you know that i've just that i've seen on the internet or people have sent like dvds or whatever it seems like she's just doing such amazing drumming I thought it was great. Did you guys think that too? Yeah, in fact, uh, pardon pardon the drum pun, but uh, she definitely marched to the beat of her own drum, so I don't know necessarily if Jack... <laughs> now like it. You could hear the cheers. Uh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, she, I, don't th- I don't know how much influence Jack would have had on her, her drumming, aside from uh, like a uh, osmotic influence. I feel like he made sure not to taint the waters and make sure that she was constantly challenging him rather than him telling her what to do. I also I agree that her drumming is getting better and better and better and better and I think this is the best drumming that she put on an album. It's really it's much more proficient and I feel like it's a lot more exciting even in this album and it still retains yeah. that as Jack White would put it that caveman quality, you know, it's got that yeah. that energy to it. I really I really enjoy the drumming on this album. And I love we both if I recall loved the album 
a great deal. At least I did yeah. for sure when we first heard it. Yeah, we bought it, James. Uh, I think we picked it up at Best Buy mm-hmm. and then drove in my '95 Saturn mm-hmm. over Saturn. to a park and turned down all the windows and then blared it and played the whole thing. That was where we heard it for the first time. Was in the in a park, uh, a couple of kids. You know, it was really um, yeah. It was a special experience, that one. Yeah. And it was earlier today, Kate, I was doing exactly what you were saying. I was blaring it in the car, uh, driving down the freeway here in star-studded Los Angeles. And we were playing the album very, very loud. And my buddy Andrew and I looked to our right, and I kid you not, director Zack Snyder. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Mr. Justice League Icky Thump trailer himself. Wow. And that's my Los Angeles story for the day. Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. This has been great. Yes. Always always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. And and I do think, you know, this was just such an exciting time for the stripes. I think if I, you know, like I sometimes think like, gosh, like if my 2007 self knew that this would be like the end, like how would things be differently? But I will say like, I got a lot of merch from that time. And so I feel like Icky Thump is just sort of immortalized. That's really like probably the biggest pieces of my collection. I think they were just doing more stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I have the nesting dolls. They were from the Icky Thump era. The, oh, yeah, um, those are cool. The cute little, you know, the jump drives. Oh, wow. Yeah, nice. That they had with the little Meg. And there's a Jack, too. That's huge. I had no idea that was that big. Yeah, but they but they fit, you know, they fit into your computer and mine still have the I've never pulled the the album off of it. I just was like, "Oh, mm-hmm. I'll leave it." But who knows, like there's probably some like amazing surprise that you only hear if you pull it off. <laughs> but um yeah. but yeah, but it's just I don't know like I think it was such a sweet time. It was a great album. Cool stuff was happening in terms of the White Stripes. They were, you know, just huge. They played Bonnaroo that year and that Bonnaroo show is on I, like it's on YouTube. And sometimes if, you know, that's one of my favorite shows to watch live. And also, you know, Danny Clinch took some of the f- photographs like that year and they're just so good. It's exciting. It's an exciting time. So, and it's just strange to think like that was that was 10 years ago. Like we were so excited like 10 years ago about this. It feels shorter for sure. And here's hoping that that mysterious recorded album that Paul talked about a couple weeks ago yeah. will will make its way into <laughs> our hands at some point so we can get a new album. Yeah, Kate, I don't know if you heard that one, but apparently the article said they have plans to, in an interview with Music Radar, Jack says he and Meg have already recorded songs for a possible 2010 release. He also discusses Meg's acute anxiety, which derailed the the duo's last tour. It was a real problem, but one, I'm happy to say, is in the past. So... As an exaggeration, I don't know, but interesting nonetheless. Yeah, very interesting. I noticed, I heard on the last show, you know, you guys talked about Meg, like, briefly kind of living in Los Angeles, like, really, like, as a normal person, probably, because she, you know, was probably able to kind of, like, traverse the city so much without, um, you know, constantly being hounded, oh, you're Meg White. What I thought was also interesting is I read an article around when they had kind of they postponed the tour for Meg's anxiety. I had read an article that talked about how she felt about L.A. And she was like, you know, initially I wanted to move there and I really liked it, but it's just really made my anxiety worse, which I can see because, you know, I, I mean, I don't know. I'm just assuming that if you there's just a lot of like pressure to probably like yes. look a certain way or be a certain way. Like if you're in Los Angeles, probably especially as a woman. 
but I can't find that now. Like I have looked and looked and I'm like, where was that? And I, I can't find it. I would believe it. I, I mean, my wife has said similar things about being out here, uh, but I could see how it would be intimidating to somebody, particularly somebody like Meg, who's prone to that kind of thing, you know? For sure. Yeah. I, yeah. Right. I mean, I can see that. Too. And plus you're, you know, it, I think she'd always kind of been in Michigan and it seems like it, it just seems like L.A. is a different... I've only ever visited, but it seems like it's just a different kind of shift from, from anywhere else. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, it's been great having you back on. We hope you join us again momentarily. Absolutely. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Absolutely. Anytime. All right. Take care. Back to the All right, James, I'm just going to, I hope you don't mind. I'm just going to blow through these here, all right? We got some shout-outs. First of all, shout-outs for new people interacting with us on social media. We've got Madalena Pereira. We have Bernardos Vilma. We have Julian De La Cruz. We have Jenel Roa. We have Kevin Moorhead. We have Susan Ruby. You guys are awesome. You're great. You're interacting with us on social media. We love it. We got our regulars. We got Jeremy Riles keeping us on the rails. We got Callie Durga, our third person. We have Adrian King, the punk rock queen. We got Andre Lyman, Andre Ice Cold Lyman. We got Eileen Corsano. We see you over there. We got David Poe. Poe! 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 <laughs> and then we got S.A. Franco, which we don't have a nickname for yet. Thank you, guys. You're friggin' awesome. Now, we've also got a Facebook page where you can go on facebook.com slash thirdmen. Check out all our shit there. Then you can go on over to Twitter, at thirdmencast. You can tweet some shit at us if you want. Then you can go on over to our Tumblr page. We got thirdmenpodcast.tumblr.com. We got Tumble all over some shit. And then we got our main page where we got all our show notes and we can post our episodes. That's the thirdmen.wordpress.com. And if you want to email us some shit, you can email that shit to thirdmenpodcast.gmail.com. Now, we got something new for this week and possibly last week too because time is a flat circle. But we are changing our, uh, our, our feed burner to switch over to Spreaker. Full time. You know what I mean? 24-7. So we're going over to Spreaker. I am so sorry that our uh, episodes have been forcibly downloading themselves onto your uh, pods. Wow. All right. Uh, You can search us on YouTube. Find us also on Acast. We'll probably still have a couple episodes on Podomatic. Their system of of putting episodes up is um, not for us. Paul's got some feelings. And I'm happy that we're switching over to Spreaker. Hello, Spreaker. I, I, I look forward to putting episodes on you. I, put, I look forward to putting my episodes all up in you. <laughs> yeah, it'll still be available on iTunes and all that stuff. Like yes. You don't have to worry about that. Spreaker is just where we'll be posting the origins of the episodes. Yes. And uh, speaking of iTunes, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We still have the contest going to win a Loretta Lynn DVD vault exclusive if you review our show and email us your review along with your name and address. Uh, we will be picking randomly of those people to win a Loretta Lynn vault DVD. We're capping it at 20 reviews. We'd also like to thank our third woman this week, Kate McCoy. Yeah, thank you, Kate. Thank you to Sam Kubert and Tom Valenti for a theme song, uh, We're the Third Men. Uh, you guys are great. Thank you to Susanna Roundtree for the intro and outro to our program. Yeah. Um, until next week, James, we'll be looking. I'll be looking for a home. Uh, I'll be looking for a home. Uh, bye. See you then. <laughs> <laughs>
For more information or to contact the show, visit thethirdmen.wordpress.com or email at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at thirdmencast on Twitter and search The Third Men on Facebook. See you next time. You know, I was thinking about it when you were talking, when, when we had Carl on the show the other day, he was talking about freezing the turkeys with the head and the feet and all and putting them in a fr- freezer pack. And I think he was talking about carbonite freezing the turkeys. I think that's what he was talking about. And so I just had this vision of like, I love you. <laughs> and that was the turkey saying, I know. Yeah. Oh man. Well, that's our good. Uh, what are you talking about? I thought we were only gonna. I thought we were gonna freeze the turkey, not kill it. <laughs> that's my really bad Lando Calrissian. That's <laughs> like Watto Calrissian. Oh man. Borba. Mm, Borba. Mm, Borba. Um. What's that, Dad? Gonna get beheaded then? <laughs> uh. Mm. What a good, what a good character arc. Um, yeah, ah, to t to t to t t to t. I I see that written there as well. So, hidey lie, lie, lie. Yeah, lie, 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 lie. Hey, we gotta go in there. We gotta go in the water there and fish for men. We gotta bro, drag out a bunch of ding dongs. Gonna be ding dongs in the water. That was just a horrible joke, Pesci. That's that's our segment. Paul's Pesci. Side power, I'm Rogue. So, I like to yeah, call it, was... it his minions phase, Paul. It's his minions phase. He's I would I would move to have that stricken from the record. It's James horribly this branded. This metaphor does minions. not track. <laughs>